you can find the reading on the back of the service sheet and I think it might appear, Josh is nodding, it will appear on the screen. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, And we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Thank you, Jane. Um, Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. (laughs) Uh, Let me pray before we get going. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which um, has been read to us. Uh, And, Lord, I pray that my words uh, would reveal your living word. Amen. Uh, Very good. Help me if you would keep the passage open, um, either in the um, sheet or uh, if you've got a Bible to hand. You have got a Bible to hand. It's on page 1093. Um, this passage from Acts is uh, unique. Uh, we've just heard the second part of the world's first evangelistic sermon in the New Testament era. We're in Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And Jerusalem is full of God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Uh, Why are they there? They're there for the Feast of Weeks, which is seven weeks after the Passover, or Easter as we now know it. 
Uh, and as we all know, seven is a significant Judeo-Christian number. And seven sevens are 49, which if you count the start date, gives you 50. And so from that, the Jewish calendar uh, and, uh, and we get Pentecost. And so what has happened? The Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles. And not only that, but they began speaking in tongues. And the international multilingual gathering of Jews is able to understand what the apostles were saying. Uh, but some of them reckoned that the apostles uh, had um, drunk too much and were drunk. Peter stands up and he makes a two-part speech. And you had part one last week, so I shan't say any more about that. Uh, Peter explained that they're not drunk but that the prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled. And now we look at the second part. And you'll see that Peter launches straight in with this international crowd, and he tells them all about Jesus. How does he do this? Well, I want us to note three things about it. And um, they are, firstly, that he does it using evidence Uh, secondly, he does it using the Bible. And thirdly, using these two, he shows that international multilingual audience that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is Lord. And he shows us that as well. Let's look, shall we, at how he does this. Well, first of all, he kicks off with evidence. He talks about this most recent event, which by my reckoning was 52 days earlier, on the first Good Friday. Well, actually, he starts a little bit before that, doesn't he? Because he gives his description of Jesus. In verse 22, he points out that Jesus was accredited by God. And how was that done? Jesus was accredited by God by miracles, by wonders, and signs. If you are an All Saints Home Group member, you will know all about this because we spent some time last term, recent studies, uh, looking at uh, some of the signs in John's Gospel. If you are not in a home group, and maybe, <coughs> excuse me, maybe I can use this moment uh, to commend home groups to you and to encourage you to join one. And if you're a visitor here, I know that you once led one. Um, so that's tremendous. Um, the, um, uh, uh, I mean, just let me say this. I'll carry on with the plug. Also, home groups are really, really good places to grow as a Christian, as well as to benefit from closer Christian fellowship and closer Christian support. But John's Gospel, with its seven signs, was written so that its readers would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, its readers would have life in his name. And if that's what John took as the core, it's unsurprising that Peter here takes the signs, the miracles, and the wonders uh, as the accreditation by God of Jesus Well, Peter then goes to the first Good Friday for his next piece of evidence when, as he says, this man was handed over to you, um, to to the Jews, uh, uh, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
and then he explains how they, with the help uh, of the Romans, put him to death. It's recent history for these people. Um, Obviously, for those who come internationally, they won't have been there, uh, but it's recent history. Um, For example, today it's July the 10th, and Peter is telling them what happened in that very same city just 52 days earlier. This is like me telling you what happened on Friday, May the 20th, okay? On Friday, May the 20th, Sue Gray was about to publish her report into the Downing Street lockdown parties. On Friday, May the 20th, Sweden and Finland uh, was chewing over whether or not to apply to join NATO, and Joe Biden made a speech supporting it. Um, A day or two earlier, on on Friday, May the 20th, Van Gelis, who wrote The Chariots of Fire music, had just died. You can remember all these things. When I tell you about them, you say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, And so um, what Peter is doing here is telling them about something which the people around them uh, all know. He continues, and God raised him, God raised Jesus from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. Now, I want to make two observations about this. First of all, facts and truth are important, and these are verifiable facts and truth about Jesus. I know it was a long time ago, but there is plenty of evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Apart from the account in the Bible, uh, his crucifixion was recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus in about AD 93. And so far as the resurrection is concerned, as I have mentioned more than once before, there's an excellent short analysis called The Evidence for the Resurrection, written by another lawyer in the middle of the 20th century called um, Norman Anderson, and it's still a good book. And, of course, it would have been so easy to disprove the resurrection. All you had to do was to find the body. My second observation about this is that phrase in verse 24. God raised him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You remember that bit in the Narnia books? where Aslan the lion is killed, and it looks as though all is lost. But then the children go back to the body, and the lion comes alive again. I will confess that I always used to find that just a bit corny. It's too much happy ever after, is what it looks like. But actually, it is the perfect illustration of the death and resurrection of Jesus. God offers himself as the sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. But God is eternal, isn't he? We say poetically he's the Alpha and the Omega. And the Greek speakers here know that's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. And if God is eternal, well, of course, death cannot hold him. Jesus' resurrection is consistent with his eternal deity. And it tells us that he is God. And just to go back to Narnia for a moment, yes, it is a happy ending. God pays the price. 
God takes the punishment which he exacts on our behalf. And all we need to do is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a really happy ending. And I want to make a third observation, if I may, about language. The word which Peter uses for agony here, where it says God raised him from the agony of death, the word which is used for agony is the word for birth pains. So what, I hear you ask? Well, it helps us to realize, doesn't it, that in Jesus' death on the cross, there's a new beginning. In his resurrection, there's a new beginning. It's a new beginning for humankind, where the possibility of forgiveness and rebirth is offered to everybody. You and me and everyone who ever lives. So Peter's using evidence here, and he uses it again in a striking way to explain the next piece of scripture, which is a quotation from Psalm 16, Psalm of David. And in that psalm, we read David saying, My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Eh? How does this work? It's quite tricky, isn't it? Because we know that David died. And we know that after death, the human body decomposes. It rots, uh, which it most certainly is decay. So what's David writing about here? Peter could point to David's tomb. We've got the, you know, the wailing wall over there. It would have been uh, maybe a bit further away than where, than where he was standing. But in Jerusalem, he can point uh, to David's equivalent of these splendid plaques that we have here. Uh, and um, he uses what is available to him to explain the passage. He says David was a prophet uh, and that David was talking not about himself but about the Messiah. He's talking about the resurrection of the Messiah. And how does Peter get his listeners to that conclusion? He does it using evidence which is around him to explain things. And, you know, I mean, it's actually quite simple to use the evidence of the world around us uh, and to use it as we talk about the gospel. And I I hope to use it effectively. Let me give you an example. It's summer now. If you go out after dusk on a clear night, perhaps a warm evening, this evening might be good, you can look up and you can see the moon, you can see planets, and you can see the stars. And this is something which I really, really enjoy doing. Um, And I sometimes do it with friends. I can see the moon, which is 240,000 miles away. Tonight, you can see Jupiter, which will rise at four minutes past midnight. You could stay up a bit late to go and see that. Jupiter is half a billion miles away. And we can see the stars. We can see those individual stars and constellations. There's the plough, there's the little bear... There's Cassiopeia, there's Cygnus, there's the Pole Star, there's Sirius, I could go on. They're all in this arm of the Milky Way galaxy, the same arm as our sun. And then you can look up again and you can see sweeping across the sky that misty, cloudy bit, 
which our parents and others always say, that's the Milky Way. Well, it is, but it's only part of it. That's the next arm of our galaxy. It's a misty thing which you really can't distinctly see. And in that misty thing, on current estimates, in that arm alone, there are 25 billion stars at least. You'll notice that you can't see the individual stars with the naked eye. And then, if you look in the constellation which is called Andromeda, which on a summer's night is rising in the east during the evening, do you know you can see a whole galaxy? Not just an arm, you can see an entire galaxy. If you hold your thumb up like that, it's bigger than your thumb. But it's very, very faint. But you can see it with the naked eye. It's 2.5 million light years away. And I look at that evidence and then I realise that God created all this. And I can say to my friends, it's big this, isn't it? But actually, God's bigger than that. Um, And if you're interested, the Hubble Space Telescope reveals that there are an estimated 100 billion galaxies. Let me move on. The second uh, thing which um, Peter uses and which he um, takes is, of course, the Bible. Uh, and I've spoken already about some of the ways in which he uses it. Uses it. And he's very wise to use the Bible. Um, when we talk about God and when we talk about Jesus, we simply need to use the Bible. We need to avoid relying on or giving our own opinions, uh, and we should just reflect what the Bible says. And that's also our defense, isn't it? If you're feeling exposed when you talk about uh, God, when you talk about Jesus, uh, your defense is, well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Uh, You've got a complete defense there. We've already seen how Peter uses Psalm 16. He uses it to point to Jesus being the Messiah. And then at verse 34, he draws in Psalm 110. He said, with, uh, with this passage, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is another psalm of David, which was seen as a prophecy of the future Messiah. It's confused in English because we use the word Lord for Yahweh, the nearest uh, to God's name for himself. Um, it's, I'm reliably told it's, he, it's Hebrew for I am that I am. And also we use the word Lord to mean master or sovereign. So those opening words, the Lord said to my Lord, might be better translated, Yahweh said to my sovereign master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, who is Yahweh referring to? He can't have been talking uh, to David. We know that David did not ascend to heaven uh, and sit at the right hand of God. His tombs there in Jerusalem. This is God speaking to the one who will rise to heaven and sit at his right hand. And David is writing about his illustrious descendant who would indeed be with the great I am. And so Peter has turned to the Bible to explain that the resurrection of Jesus, which has happened, is consistent with scripture. And in doing this, You know, he makes a huge leap in understanding. 
The Messiah in Jewish expectation was a salvation figure. And the Jewish people have been waiting for this Messiah for a very, very long time. They have been waiting for the Messiah since the fall from grace in the Garden of Eden, which is back in Genesis, you'll remember. How do we know that, that they've been waiting since then? Because we read it in the Bible. God says to the serpent who tempted Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. The Messiah will defeat Satan. But there had been earlier messiahs. Now, um, if you find that a bit of a shock, then I did once as well. And I'm very pleased to have had the opportunity actually to, to prepare this talk tonight because it's helped me to sort out something very disturbing which I was told on a course run by the Diocese of Chelmsford, which was called the Chelmsford Course of Christian Studies. Um, and it's one of those hurdles that um, dioceses put between people who um, are lay people and think they might want to become a reader or a, or a, um, uh, a vicar or something. Anyway, um, I, was, um, I was doing this course and somebody said there are other messiahs. And I thought, hang on, this doesn't sound right. This is quite difficult. Um, but it is true that when you look, for example, at... Cyrus I, he is described in Isaiah 45 as, a, as, the, as the Lord's anointed to go out and do something, as a Messiah figure. And there are other instances as well. But the difference here, and this is what was not explained to me, the difference here between Cyrus and Jesus, between the other Messiah deliverers and Jesus, is that Jesus is the eternal Messiah. He is not the political messiah. He is not the patriot, the general, or the politician on a par with Herod's, Caesar's, and other world leaders. As David's master and sovereign, he is the ruler of an eternal and heavenly kingdom who waits at God's right hand until his enemies are crushed to be footstools under his feet. This Messiah, whose earthly humiliation was such a contrast with the power of popular messianic expectation at the very time that Peter and the first Pentecost is happening, this Messiah is now exalted to the right hand of God. This Messiah far transcends that hope of a national kingdom. Uh, Bearing in mind my recent professional experience, I am tempted to compare the difference between the two to the difference between a single onshore wind turbine with an output of three megawatts and a nuclear power station with an output of 3.7 thousand megawatts. But I think that comparison is inadequate. The contrast exceeds orders of magnitude. It exceeds quantum leaps. Perhaps we can think of the difference between a human being and the magnitude of the universe I began to describe earlier. Moon, planets, stars, next star with the Milky Way, Andromeda, 100 billion galaxies. And then add some. 
And that's the difference between Cyrus and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is showing to his multinational, multilingual Jewish audience. The other messiahs, like us, were truly physically insignificant. But God numbers even the hairs on our heads. So my third point uh, about what um, Peter demonstrates is that he demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who reconciles us to God. He is the one who makes us great again, to take a modern political slogan. That is my third and almost final point. For that Jewish audience, it was the key take-home point. Jesus is the eternal salvation figure, the eternal Messiah. I've got one extra final point. I know sermons should only have three. This is the fourth one, but it's very quick. Peter was a fisherman. He was not a philosopher. He was not a trained theologian. He was not what um, the French love to call a member of the liberal professions, like lawyers. He was a fisherman. Yet he was an evangelist. He was a man who could explain. He is an example to us. He's an example which tells us that we don't need special skills to talk about Jesus. We don't need special skills to explain the gospel. Oh, sure. Like him, we need courage, but we do have the gifts. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forthright, uh, clear nature of what um, Peter was able to say that first Pentecost. Thank you, Lord, for his focus. Uh, Thank you for the gifts uh, which uh, he had. Uh, And we thank you for his courage too. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah who brings us back to you who rescues us, who is eternal, the one who reconciles us to you. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus saves and he saves forever. Amen.